Pittsburgh is gonna have the news. Monday, October 28th. The spookiest Monday of the year, <laughs> maybe. This is LA Podcast. I am Scott Frazier. We've got Alyssa Walker and Hayes Davenport here. How are you guys doing this morning? Okay. Spooky. Yeah, I'm feeling a little bit spooky. <laughs> you two said a while ago that fall is the worst month in LA. Yeah. And at the time, I sort of quietly worst disagreed some, with several you. Several months, even. Uh, yes. Thank you. <laughs> uh, but at the time, it was like a little cool and like cloudy outside, more like it is today, Sunday. Yeah, it's like pretty nice. nice today. But over the last few weeks, I've been like, oh, yeah, this this sucks. <laughs> I feel like I finally like learned my lesson as an Angelino with children of the trick-or-treating age and waited to get my pumpkins until the final heat wave. Uh-huh. There could uh-huh. be more. But if you put them out, they just turn to mush. They mush. So. And, and that's what I had actually bought my... I bought my pumpkins several weeks ago. Mm. I had them out in my living room and people kept coming in and being like, well, you're not planning on carving those, are you? I was like, I am. <laughs> actually, that's that's why I got them. And I was informed by several people that, that they would rot like the next day. And and it's a good thing that it was several people because I actually didn't believe the first person who told me that. Well, they, they look kind of scary once they start to rot. Once they melt. Yeah, yeah. they start to get like <laughs> flies. If I had gotten pumpkins and put them outside, I realized I might not have so many bugs inside my house because they could just be eating the pumpkin. But this is like this is an additive thing. I don't think that. (laughs) But this is like the time of year when the creatures like really come inside (laughs) because (laughs) this is the end of the dry season. So they're so like there's no water anywhere except in my garbage disposal. (laughs) (laughs) They all make their way inside. That's where I, they all end up. I feel like, so the weeks like we just had where it's just like 95 and dry and windy, I just feel like my entire body is turned into a giant bellows for just like polluted air. <laughs> just like blows in through my body. And then I'm like creating a, a fire risk just by breathing yeah. out. So we're breathing burnt vegetation <laughs> and probably the remains of a lot of people's homes. Homes. Yeah. Exactly. Because we have multiple fires going in LA right now. We were talking before the show and it was hard to keep track of how many fires there actually were to talk about. But the Saddle Ridge fire was obviously a, a couple weeks ago. That is out now. The Tick fire up in Santa Clarita is still burning, but I think that's about 80% contained. There's a pretty yeah. big fire in the Sepulveda Basin late last week and also a fire in the Palisades. Yeah, I believe all of those are majority contained at this point, if not more. So yeah, we have a, a much more secure situation as compared to the northern half of the state this week, obviously. Yeah, you you have to feel very fortunate compared right. to what's going on up in Sonoma County and Santa Rosa again is being evacuated right now on Sunday. They said it's the like the worst fire conditions basically that they've ever seen. You see a lot of firefighters and people saying that it didn't really used to be like this. Or I saw like they used to get a reprieve at night when it would get more humid and the temperatures would drop a little bit. And now the fires just are allowed to just explode out of control. There is no reprieve. 90 mile an hour winds this morning. We're we're also hearing like the the intensity of the fires has increased significantly. So the the heat that they're generating, they're burning much hotter than fires in in previous years and, and decades did. So makes them harder to fight. Mm-hmm. It also has impacts for what will grow afterwards and how things will grow afterwards. So we are 
you know, it's, it's frightening. We're, we're seeing kind of like the rescaping of our mm-hmm. landscape in real time. Let's talk about what happened up in San Francisco. It's uh, not directly affecting us, but I think there are some uh, lessons for us in what, what went on up there. Alyssa, how did the, the most recent fire, the Kincaid fire, uh, start up there? Well, once again, we don't know for sure yet, but it looks to be that it was transmission lines that were coming in from, you know, where like, it's like the Napa Sonoma County border, right? So it's like hilly and windy, you know, it's, it's not, it's not what you, it's, it doesn't seem like super rural or super forested in your mind. Like it's like where you go wine tasting. I don't know. There's people everywhere. I don't know. But again, you're coming over some of these passes. It's very windy. It's the same thing that happened um, with like the Tubbs fire, like you said, two years ago, where the fire just came very fast over a hillside. And then next thing you know, it was in, you know, Santa Rosa, Rosa. Windsor, all these cities up there. So the same thing, they, we saw these power downs, what are we calling them? Intentional blackouts, PSPS, right? Public Mm -hmm. safety. They make it sound so good. Public safety, power Power shut shut off. off. Oh, wow. Thanks. Um, (laughs) But, and they, what they were saying the day after PG&E was that they didn't see the forecasts as showing that winds would be as powerful as they were, hmm. that the conditions would be something that they would have turned that particular. So the, they did turn a lot. They turned of the a power lot out. off. They turned a lot off, but they didn't turn that particular Wait, area. So, so off. that they they didn't see the for, forecast. Like the forecast existed. The forecast, or was the forecast existed. Wrong? They here's okay. So here's what PG&E CEO said. We didn't see the wind speeds in the forecast that we typically would see for transmission outage. We relied on the protocol and we still at this point do not know exactly what happened. So this is kind of what we were talking about before, Alyssa, when when you and me talked about this two weeks ago. Like these public safety shutoffs, these are an incredibly blunt instrument to mm-hmm. try and stop wildfires. Like we're, we... <laughs> Just because you have a threshold for when you expect that fire danger might be elevated enough, not a reliable way to actually predict. You're trying to predict, like we said, wind and embers and where electrical equipment might possibly give off sparks. It's either going to be an uh, an area that is much too large Mm -hmm. or you're going to miss something is like a very likely scenario. And that's what we saw here again for the second time in in several weeks. So this infrastructure, my understanding of it, what it seems like gave off the spark that may have started the Kincaid fire was not like local wires. It was a heavy transmission line into the big cities. And we have made fun of this map that Wired put out a couple of weeks ago showing that, oh, all of the big tech companies, (laughs) all their headquarters were allowed to keep their power on. And it was only in the outskirts where the low income people live uh, they got the power turned off and it was like this is so stupid it's in the big cities that were left on because there was no fire danger there but yeah right it, it was this kind of equipment that was supplying power presumably to the places that had their power left on like in the heart of san francisco right. and uh and silicon valley so should those have been shut off as well i mean imagine like like presumably that could have prevented this fire if they just blacked out the entire bay area but that can't be a compromise that we need to be forced to make just like blackouts for millions of people newsom had very strong words uh for pg and e following the the most recent announced round of shutoffs uh, i think there there's been a considerable amount of media coverage that has been about the state and utilities going back and forth about who should ultimately own the responsibility for what is going to be shut off but 
I personally was surprised given the similar scope of these shutoffs to the previous round of shutoffs. Again, not even yes. three weeks ago, Newsom came out very forcefully saying, I believe his exact words were, we're going to hold PG&E to an account that they've never been held to before. Mm -hmm. We're going to, you know, we're going to do everything within our power to make sure that they come out of bankruptcy as a different organization. And he also said that would apply to the two non-bankrupt major investor-owned utilities, yeah. including SoCal Edison here in LA County. He really wants to see changes in how they're operated and where their accountability lies. We don't know yet what that looks like, but yeah. it, it, presumably it is, it's not seizing them. Presumably. He said everything in our power. And I was like, well, there's like, there's something very obviously in your power. Uh, you already vetoed. But I, 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 I imagine yeah. that it is not that. Uh, but we don't know what he's referring to directly. I was reading about how these new liabilities for PG&E have to be paid first because they're not part of the, the bankruptcy. old bankruptcy legislation. Yeah. So can you go super bankrupt it sounds like a, <laughs> like, a, like a george bluth thing like you can't go bankrupt for the second time. <laughs> yeah right <laughs> i don't believe there were any deaths from the tick fire but there was one briefly suspected to be a death but it just turned out that the fire had revealed human remains that right. just hadn't been discovered wow and no deaths up north either yes. so that's good i mean as as dangerous as that is i think they're being overly cautious they you know the evacuations went all the way to the ocean today yeah this morning. it's too early to say overly cautious I know. well they're they're being overly <laughs> cautious now which i think is good but then again i mean how uh, the power's out the air sensors i was looking at all these different maps where you couldn't see information you can't see how bad the air is going to be how do you make the forecasts for school mm -hmm. closures, things like that, right? So you're having basically people working with no technology and no, yeah. <laughs> they're having yeah. to go up and, and make these calls. And then you have to evacuate at four o'clock in the morning when mm -hmm. it's dark and you have no power. I mean, this is, I'm surprised, I'm surprised there aren't more injuries that are like people falling yes. over things or like car crashes oh from like God. the stoplights being out, right? Yes. There's an article in the LA Times by Angel Jennings about the tick fire that contained a quote from a sheriff's deputy that said, the fire burned away the vegetation that was concealing the bones. Well, 2019. Yep. <laughs> in a nutshell. Yeah. There was also a report this week, coincidentally, probably not something that firefighters have had time to pay a lot of attention to, but it was a report on what went wrong during the Woolsey fire last year. Jenna Chandler wrote a summary of it in Curbed basically saying that the county was unprepared for such an unimaginable disaster, but also saying this is nothing compared to what we would be dealing with in the face of a major earthquake. So a lot of changes have to be made to how we handle these problems. Alyssa, what was some of the stuff uh, in this report that was put out by who? So this was a report that the county commissioned to look at what the response was like to, like you said, in, in, improve and improve for next time, which could be yeah, in a few weeks right. or, you know, at any time uh, in, an, in the case of an earthquake. And yeah, like you said, it was one relatively small event that was over a large geographic area, I guess, as small as in, you know, it could have been much larger and it was kept contained to one small geographic part of the city. But if there was an earthquake or something like that, which where we would have uh, multiple centers of disasters happening at the same time, it was very scathing on how we would not be able to to deal with this. The one thing that was most relevant to probably our readers was that there was 
there was concluded to be an over-reliance on using Twitter yes. to get critical information out, which, me, I, right? which I thought was <laughs> very uh, telling. But yeah, I, I they have these apps, Notify LA, yeah. there's all these other... The um, Nixle, uh, Nixle. I mean, there's like, you can get text messages. But I, as we're seeing, especially now with what's going on up north, your power goes out, your internet goes out, your, your cell towers go down. They, they don't have their batteries. They have batteries, but they don't last very long. So what are we looking at here when it comes to getting out this information? I mean, we need like loudspeakers <laughs> in neighborhoods. I'm not uh, even yeah. joking. I mean, yeah. they, or, you know, we need those Cold War sirens to be brought back to life or something like that. We're seeing over and over again, people aren't getting these critical messages about getting out and what to do and where to go. And so I thought that was one of the most interesting uh, technology. Yeah. And actually, all of them were kind of related to technology. They were all about wireless alerts and their, you know, com communication. And and we and people didn't even really know the evacuation plans for their own neighborhoods. So this is mm -hmm. this is a big deal. Yeah, the, the communication with the big app providers. I I forget if I talked about this, but a couple of weeks ago when I was driving up to San Francisco, I was taken right through Porter Ranch as the Saddle Ridge fire was burning. Really, it was directing on you Google Maps. Yeah, it was like haze. Yeah, trust me. Yeah, it really did feel like <laughs> just let the flame consume you. <laughs> I could see it like coming up over the hills, and I'm like, this. Well, this must be okay. Yeah. Surely Google Maps would lead me directly okay, into yes. this flame. <laughs> And the police are like frantically telling me to turn around. And like, what are you doing here? I'm following the algorithm. So what we did in my neighborhood recently, which I'm so pleased to say, and I hope everybody does this, we did this Ryland training that the uh -huh. city has. Yeah. Ready your LA local area. Yeah. No, no. Ready, Ready your, your LA, LA neighborhood. neighborhood. <laughs> yeah. um, and oh, what we rough. did is we <laughs> brutal. They created like a geographic area that we, you know, it's just it's really just two blocks, and then they gave everyone like a a number assigned to their household and we all have roles now. We know like who's a nurse and who, although they'll probably be going to work at the hospital, but we know who has like a truck, who has, yeah. you know, generators. What's your role? Podcaster. Uh, well, I, yeah, I'll be running the emergency podcast <laughs> from my house, from my solar powered uh, radio station. I just pop up there. Actually, one of the things that I didn't really think much about, which is really important, is childcare. Yes. Because people have to go take care of stuff and somebody's house has to become a place where just the kids can hang out. Yeah. Hopefully it's safe at my house. But that's yours. I think that's what I'll end up probably having to do. Wow. But I'll probably have to work too. I mean, yeah, if sure. if you're if people we're gonna need people who are out there, you know, piecing the city back together. But anyway, I highly recommend doing this because as this report showed Yes, we probably have the firefighting power. I mean, we there there were some other issues going on, but it was really it really came down to communication and yeah. our over reliance on certain technologies that are going to fail. Something I was surprised by in the article, it talks about how LA County Fire made many requests to surrounding agencies, including personal calls from chiefs and commanders to other chiefs in Southern California to ask for their help, and most of those requests were not fulfilled were not met. That's, I mean, like, I'm sure in many cases because they had their own stuff to deal with or maybe because they're in, like, a, a similar fire zone and didn't want to get caught yeah. without any equipment if a fire did start. But 53% of the fire engine mutual aid requests were unfilled in the first two days. So 874 units that they asked for didn't come, uh -huh. and the fire burned 96% of its footprint in those two days. I mean, that could happen again very easily. That could happen at any time, especially when we have multiple fires going on in the county, right? Sure. 
mean, you, like, you do kind of wonder, like, at what point I, we were looking before we recorded today at the LA Times's map of everywhere that there are fires burning in the state of California and in neighboring states too. Like, at a certain point, I think we are very much in danger of like tapping our resources to address not only the firefighting, yeah. but also like the aid for affected communities very early on in, yeah. in fire season. And also last year, some firefighter, local firefighters had just left to go up north to fight the campfire uh-huh. because that had started the day before, which is you know also another issue. But the one thing that I kept hearing when uh, I was in Malibu in the days after the Woolsey fire and talking to people who had been there fighting, you know, the now annual fires in some cases that happen is that they still have some, in some cases, the same amount of people defending many more houses that are in these canyons. So how could we expect them to, you know, make this defense, you know, get be out there. And when they used to only know that there were, Oh, five, six, seven houses at the end of this, like cul-de-sac. And now there's like an entire new subdivision, you know, on top of this mountain that was, wasn't there before. How can we expect them to to get there? Can I share another quote that I read in the LA Times? This is uh, about up in wine country, article by Anita Chabria talking about uh, Guerneville up by the Russian River about how there were mandatory evacuations there, but a lot of people in the town just went to this restaurant called Betty Spaghetti and drank. Uh, And the quote from a resident said, uh, we are evacuating our brains. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I I also read this article and I was just like, this is... And then she started taking margarita though. (laughs) This is like the- Wait, how are they running the karaoke? Generator karaoke? This is yes, amazing. It's acapella. Battery they- power. <laughs> <laughs> they are. It was generator powered, yes. <laughs> and they're saying that they're going to jump in the Russian River if yes. if the fire approaches. Oh, okay. No, no problem. Yeah. No problem. Speaking of uh, putting out fires, Herb Wesson. <laughs> Earlier this week, uh, gasoline (laughs) article came out by uh, David Zanizer and Emily Alpert Reyes in the L.A. Times revealing that uh, L.A. uh, president of the city council, Herb Wesson, uh, from the 10th district, Koreatown, so the area around USC and like the near Culver area, his son received preferential treatment on his rent for years at an apartment building where he lived in L.A., that happened to be owned by Rosewood Corp, a developer headed by a guy named Michael Hakim, who was being helped by Herb Wesson with another project that he wanted to build. Herb Wesson was helping this developer get through the very arcane city planning process. And at the same time, his son, Herb Wesson III, went more than five years without getting a rent increase on the apartment building, even at the the same time as basically every other tenant saw their rent rise. Somehow other people, three other people in the building knew that Herb Wesson III was getting a rent break while living in this apartment. And they knew that it was provided because his father is a councilman. Because Herb Wesson III told them this, said in quotes, he had received a discount because of his business, business his father was doing with the owners of the building. (laughs) (laughs) This is, I mean, this is Herb. This is a little Herb. Bombshell. I, honestly, the, the the reporting here. I think one of the uh, one of the biggest things that would come out of this is this is a specific project that gained a lot of scrutiny. Yes, several it was very years controversial. Ago. It was a thirty five story tower in Koreatown, in part of Koreatown that is represented by Herb Wesson, that gained 
notoriety because of the fact that it had been denied approvals to two separate times, um, as reported by Zanazer and, and Emily Alperez here, two separate times by the City Planning Commission, mm-hmm. and uh, including by the commission when it was made up fully of appointees of current mayor Eric Garcetti, and then Garcetti overruled the Planning Commission's denial of the, uh, of, of the permits, which, although it is in his right to do in certain circumstances, it still gained a lot of attention because it was not something that he had previously done. This was a project that it was basically uh, that the the opponents were saying would lead directly to gentrification because it was a lot of upscale housing right in the middle of a part of uh, Koreatown that is seeing a lot of development currently. But it was a 35 story building on a block with mostly like two and three story buildings. Mm -hmm. It was sued. The pro- the project and the the uh, approvals that were given by the city were the subject of a lawsuit by Fix the City, who actually won in uh-huh. this case. Uh, a judge sided with them, and the project has stalled out since then. But it's it's very interesting to note that the planning commission had said this project we can't give it approvals; it won't hold up. The mayor stepped in. Herb Wesson was notably in favor of this project. The mayor stepped in and said uh, that it was allowed to go ahead regardless of what the planning commission said. Uh, And now we're hearing that it just so happens that the company that is developing this project is also granting favorable treatment to the son of the city council president. Least they can do. They're getting their money's worth in for spades. sure. <laughs> in spades, right? Um, and this this is, I, I, if I remember correctly, this was the type of project that was the subject of a lot of attention during the Measure S debates, which yes. was because it was being granted essentially a special, uh, a special license to be built regardless of what the zoning for the the lot said could be built there. That has now since been made illegal or uh, a con- it's not permitted under the city ordinances anymore to do those types of special zoning. But it's, it's the kind of thing that you like, you look at it and you think, surely there is no way that you would be this blatantly, uh, like flagrantly flaunting the, the ethics uh, laws of the city. And yet it does seem like there is no punishment for anything <laughs> right. like this. It's all very well documented. Uh, it's very clear that other residents of the building were not treated the same way. One woman says that they tried to bill her for a missing light bulb when she moved out of mm-hmm. the building and that her rent was increased every year except one that she lived there. But uh, Jessica Levinson, who's a Loyola Law School professor who served on the Ethics Commission, said that the investigation would have to prove that Herb Wesson worked with the developer of the of the tower to make this deal for his son that's going to be basically impossible to unless there's an email saying like hey give my son a break on his rent instead they just have it so that everyone knows what's going on his son is telling other people in his building that he's getting a rent break because of his dad but if it wasn't specifically ordered by Herb Wesson instead of somebody saying, hey, don't like don't do this, like give me like the same treat me the same as everybody else. You have to basically opt in to uh, corruption, corruption charges just like instead of not opting. Well, out. I, I want to talk about the greater context in which this is happening. We already know that we <laughs> there hasn't been much new news on this front in a long time. But one of the things that came out from 
the FBI uh, search warrants that were executed on a number of city council members, including Jose Huizar and uh, current Price. Yeah. This is the exact kind of behavior that, that we were talking about in that case where it was in order to move projects through the arcane system of L.A. city planning, developers were finding it profitable to or necessary to grease the palms of sitting city council members. Mm -hmm. One of the people who was named in that search warrant was chief of staff to Herb Wesson. And at the time, we said... We don't have any indication that Herb Weston is engaging in the specific type of behavior. Now we do. Yeah. <laughs> now we have very clear indication that he is doing the exact same thing. And there is reason to believe. I mean, at that point, what, like, what is there? What is the, the doubt that you would have that this extends throughout city council? It's kind of similar to a story that also came out this week, also by Emily Albert Reyes, about an ethics commission fine of a real estate developer's company that gave money to a Joan Pellico. She's Paul Coretz's former aide. She ran in CD4 in 2015. Uh, and this real estate developer basically got a bunch of maximum donations for her and then reimbursed them from like 10 different people, which is straight up not legal. That's what Ref right. Rodriguez got uh, almost like sent to prison for yep. doing, for reimbursing people. His, But the, the fine was only that his company had to pay $71,000. That's the maximum fine, which he must be, this developer, Bruce Mikowski, must be so relieved. Yeah. He, didn't, he wasn't personally liable at all wow. because he just claimed that he didn't know that this was illegal to have other people give donations and then reimburse them. The thing... That I, I have so many questions about all these things, but Joan Pellico says that she had no idea and it goes against everything I stand for and believe in. These donors do not want to be anonymous when they are bundling donations for you and and getting them reimbursed. They want the candidate to know yeah. that they got them all of this money so that they can get favorable treatment. This isn't like they just oh the oh we don't want to be recognized we just want to like support you and don't need any uh, any attention for it no they want you to know that they did this there's no way that the candidates don't know about these things it's so LA every time every time this comes up I feel like I am led back to the same point which is LA city ethics is a joke like it none none of the none of the politicians take the ethics commission seriously. None of the uh, penalties seem like they are sufficient to dissuade this kind of behavior, nor does it even seem like the enforcement is uh, sufficiently well-defined that they can find and hold people accountable when flagrant abuses are being yeah. committed. And that seems like a really troubling thing that is not brought up enough in this city. Like if we're talking about, if we're talking about a serial pattern of corrupt behavior by let's say a majority of of the city council members you would think that that would be not just bigger news but that there would be some sort of concerted effort to do something about it um of course we have i think our there's like a weird conflation of reformism in LA with like the like no zero growth movement like you have your like Jill Stewart's and uh, uh -huh. what's the name of that guy from City Watch 
Jack Humphreyville. Like th- those are the people who are like everyone is everyone is corrupt. Therefore, like the only way to do anything about this is to like develop nothing ever, and that yes. will that will solve our problems. There aren't like really and to just gut the city budget because they will spend it on right. They're they're fraud. zero growth libertarians, yeah. which is a fun combination <laughs> of of person. <laughs> That only exists in LA, and <laughs> um, but but it is it's interesting though that we don't see like we're coming up on an election season right now. There aren't like typical reformist candidates running. There aren't like throw out all of the the corrupt politicians candidates running. And in a lot of races, we don't even have any challengers. It's interesting to me because this seems like a problem that is so deeply ingrained in our political culture right now. There's a big opening for somebody to to be like. Mm-hmm. We need to do something to to make sure that there are like strict punishments for ethical abuses. A little shade from Scott. Speaking of shade, we <laughs> transitions are amazing. Today. Very good, very good. We have a, a new development. The mayor is trying to address the vast majority of bus stops in the city that do not have any kind of shelter or shade protection. Alyssa, what is the solution? that he has proposed and partially implemented. What's the story here? So there's a new, yet another branded campaign that we will see rolling out on our streets. Uh-huh. Uh, cool Street. I thought we already had a Cool Streets campaign. Maybe yeah. it was Cool Streets TM, and now this is Cool Streets R. Um, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought there already was. I think this is actually called Cool Street. Uh-huh. So... It's an, in addition to the cool pavements that we've talked uh-huh. about before, painting the streets white or this light yeah. gray paint, which we, we can talk about that more in a minute. It's also planting trees, yes. which is good. And then also creating some shade for bus stops, which uh, I think a majority of them have nothing. I pr- probably, uh, yes, the number a is, vast yeah, majority the majority of them. have literally have nothing. And then drinking fountains. Uh-huh. Hydration stations, which are just drinking fountains. <laughs> and they did a pilot program in South LA. I haven't been to see it in person yet, but we sent uh, Jessica Flores, one of our amazing reporters down there to cover it. And then today they started a big tree planting, the 90,000 trees that we've talked about before that they're going to plant within the next two years. They started the, the tree planting campaign this weekend. So we've got now some action being taken and, and a plan for how to cool and green our streets. But I kept looking through this plan and it's like six corridors in like two years and 10 Mm. corridors by 2025 or something like that. I mean, this should be happening to every street by next summer. I mean, this we can't really wait much longer and what are we waiting for i don't at least some of the improvements i mean maybe you don't do all of them on every corridor if that's whatever cost or time prohibitive right but the the new shade protection for these bus stops are just umbrellas is that well they put these umbrellas up at some bus benches like the existing green ones on this south la street but they said that they're going to be coming up with a different solution I mean, are they are they meant to last a long time or is this really just like meant to last for this pilot period? I, I think they're anchored into the ground. But from what I could tell, they just they just look like umbrella. I mean, like, I got to say, like as far as street furniture goes, that's great. Like compared to what's there, which yes, is nothing, nothing. Yeah, I would totally take a, a sun umbrella yes. at, at 
every bus stop that I'm at. Yeah. For, <laughs> mu- for much of the day, it doesn't actually provide shade for the bench. You do right. have, you to to go. Stand behind you have to walk. You still have to go behind six it. Six feet away to find the shade. Still, still miles of what, of what is of what is currently available. Yeah, I think what is puzzling. I mean, yes, of course. Like you see, you see people doing this, right? Yeah. You see businesses, and there was this great story in Places Journal by Sam Block about. Uh-huh this business owner who had made his own like little shade structure outside of his business to where the bus stop was to, you know, help people not have to stand in the blazing sun. But the city made him take that down. Yeah. And I think what's so interesting now is we're going to have this competition where we're going to come up with shade structures. They, you know, designers or architects are going to come up with like innovative shade structures that are maybe go beyond this umbrella, which you said could be totally effective, but might also walk off in the middle of the night. Because I, right. I, I can't see how these could fare as well. Our bus shelters get trashed already. So it's like, what? how is an umbrella <laughs> going to fare on our streets? But why are we holding a competition? Why, again, are we spending more time, more effort to see what works when you could say, oh, business owner, you want to do something cool. You should do it. You want to brand something as part of your development. You should do it. The city built this amazing, actually, transit plaza with a lot of shade um, at the like Hoover Triangle area mm. in in USC, yeah. and put in mature trees and put in you know these really nice like triangular canopies and really actually great furniture to sit on. That's we know right. the answer. Uh-huh. We don't yeah, we don't uh, need to prototype this. Friend of the show, Sarah Slaiman had a, an article about that Hoover Triangle uh, redo for Streets Blog. I think I I'm always fascinated by the use of pilots to like we're gonna we're gonna pilot like positioning an opaque object in front of the sun to see if it <laughs> works to provide shade like it, it always is just like a it's a, a drain on both resources and uh, time and it is unnecessary but it, it what it does is it effectively allows the like it just it allows for non-commitment right, right. and that's that's really the point so my question to you scott since you are our bus shelter expert yeah why wouldn't we just Put the bus shelters at all the bus stops. Uh, yeah, uh, this is a this is a big one. So the city of LA entered into a, a twenty year contract about twenty years ago for the provision of all street furniture on city streets. This is something where people get mad frequently at Metro, myself included. At a certain level, you can't really avoid it. You're waiting for a Metro bus. If you're on like any major boulevard in LA, there are almost no real shade structures. So you're lining up in two inches of shade next to a building. And but if it's, if it's an obscure stop, you find yourself wondering if you are in the right place or if this sign is just accidentally <laughs> left up. It's abandoned. It does feel like there's it's no like, other indication that a bus will ever be here. You're, right, you're yeah. in an alien world where there's just, there's no shelter and there's no uh, there's no sign of life. Um, but yeah, so th- there's a, a 20 year contract that the city of LA entered into that says that out front JC Deco mm-hmm. has, has the sole right to put up street furniture on city streets that includes bus, bus shelters. And this is a, an advertising company we should make clear. Yeah, this yeah. Is... They do. I mean, they do really cool things in certain places. Um, city of West Hollywood has some really cool 
like locally, they have some very cool bus shelters yeah. that, that JC Deco is doing there. I was just in Paris. Almost all of the bus shelters there are, are JC Deco. A local company. They're yeah. French. It's, it's yeah. a French company. They also uh, do so some corny things. They do their best well. stuff back They home. are the ads that are like for vitamin water. That's like that feeling when you just miss the bus. <laughs> <laughs> everything to do with the ads the, the so the, they are them. certainly certainly capable of doing good work however there is clearly something not good about the contract that the city of la has with them in that it has not produced uh it has not produced bus shelters mm-hmm. and it has tied the city's hands in their ability to put up their own bus shelters or get somebody else to do it there don't seem to be uh, I, I think it's probably reliable to assume that uh, when this contract was executed, there was very little consideration for the types of people who are riding the bus and simply that this was a way to generate some amount of one-time revenue and it was not a consideration whether or not people would actually be benefiting from it who were using the streets. And now we are suffering from that 20 years later. So that is why we're in the position that we're in. However, we need to be looking to the future like as this as this contract is ending and as our climate is rapidly warming we need to be thinking about what the next 20 years of being a pedestrian and being a transit rider in LA are going to look like and and this is this is an area where we should have the ability to make it a lot more pleasant than it historically has been all of this of course overlaps with our homelessness crisis a lot of yep. the resistance to uh, bus infrastructure and benches is basically designed to keep people who are homeless out of an area and stop them from having a place to sit and in particular lie down the out front uh, and like the bus benches are all basically hostile architecture where they have these what yep. uh, you could very generously call armrests in between <laughs> each seat that do not function as that I would love all. I would love to see someone try and use them as an armrest <laughs> even if it weren't a hundred degrees to touch them. I just kind of slide right off of them they are, they are sloped a little bit too you yeah. kind of they are maybe two Scott's inches off of the bench and they're right angled <laughs> angled downward and then they're usually 130 degrees because it's they don't have any protection over them. Yeah, you, you could call them a brand, I think, <laughs> at that point. They're just designed to keep people from lying down. And so what you have instead, I know some people who are homeless that have set up shop in some of these bus benches and just basically sleep sitting up. So it doesn't keep people away. All it does is make people less comfortable, which is the idea. Yep. And none of this will like, like public infrastructure will never be like totally suitable for the public as long as we force so many people to live outside. Like they won't be able to function as bus shelters. They will be just shelters, just like straight up shelters. It's not a bad thing to alleviate conditions for people who live on the street however you can. But like these problems are going to have to be tackled simultaneously if we want the stuff to be used as it was intended for people that are riding right. public transportation. And I don't want to I also want to you said uh, JC Dicko is, you know, does great work and they are a great company and they will if you want them to put a bus shelter at your bus stop. They will do it. You can just, Maddie Brosen was on a panel that I was moderating at Ciclavia from UCLA, and she has gotten two bus shelters installed on two different Mm -hmm. bus stops that she waits at regularly because she just 
hounded them on Twitter and explained, you know, the type of people that were waiting and why they needed a shelter. So she has single-handedly gotten two shelters installed. So it's not like the city is preventing new ones from being put in. And often when new developments get built, um, that's part of their deal with the city when they have to put put something in front of their building. So it's not like there's a freeze on these. And you can ask ask for, you know, new amenities to be put in your bus stop. You probably just have to wait a long time. But I guess I just don't understand why, if we know the shelter is a decent solution, why we have to crowdsource different shading solutions that will now take more months to have a winner declared and pick materials and then that yeah. won't work the for con- some the reason. The contest mentality and, I mean, is always, is always uh, a bit vexing to me. Like yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't. It just seems like a delay tactic, like you're saying, right? Yes. It do- and and it if, absolutely we're, is. if we're only going to install 10 of these corridors by 2025, I guess we have time to have a competition. <laughs> I guess we can have like Frank Gehry make us something and just start fabricating them one by one uh, um, in his shop or something. But it's just very... Sculpted I, metal yeah, yeah, shade structures. Totally cooling. Blinding pilot. We just don't have any more time. And the, it's, people are going to forget about this maybe as it gets cooler again, but then it might rain. And then we remember that we need shelters that are better than just shade structures. Yeah. We need... Things with roofs on them, yeah. right? So, but we're going to forget about this issue and just keep it top of mind mm-hmm. as we go into these cooler months. Like keep, umbrellas work for keep, that too. Se- yeah, the umbrellas do work for that. Hard to keep stories like that top of mind when things uh, like the Katie Hill story are going on, which we are going to talk about right now. Hey, it's Hayes uh, cutting in just to say that we recorded this episode on Sunday morning and the segment that you are about to hear about Congresswoman Katie Hill is already a little dated uh she hours after we recorded uh announced that she was resigning from congress uh but a lot of what we talked about is still relevant and so we decided to leave it in so the episode continues after the boop boop katie hill congresswoman representing the north uh, la county area overlaps a little bit with la city beat Steve Knight, the Republican in that uh, district in 2018, part of California's blue wave, one of seven uh, Congress members there that flipped seats from Republican to Democrat, was in the news this week in an incredibly ugly story in multiple ways where it appears like potentially her husband, it's unclear who actually leaked them, but someone has been leaking images of her including what basically amounts to revenge porn to the website Red State and to the Daily Mail, showing her in various like compromising positions, but most notably in like a sexual relationship with a staff member, Uh, a young woman who is was reportedly in a relationship with both her and her husband in a polyamorous situation. Right. There are also other like. These outlets were just like flooded with like different ac- like lifestyle. This was a kind of, we were Hayes and I were were at dinner and Hayes was saying he was surprised it hadn't gotten more attention outside of Red State. And I was like, oh, I feel like you know it just it was just getting started. But now right. we have seen a week later that the right wing media nationally and internationally is really thrilled about yeah. this. They are having like story after story about you know, the the more salacious in their mind elements of, of this story. I think what is most particularly concerning or should be for residents of Katie Hill's district is that the Congresswoman is now subject to an ethics committee investigation. Mm-hmm. Um, because of accusations in part that she has denied 
being in a relationship with another staff member currently in her congressional yeah. so, office, so not a campaign. That, that is member. good. We, we should tease that out. So the um, there are there are multiple phases to this. That one that Katie Hill admitted that she was in an extramarital affair, in her words, during the end of her relationship, which she described as abusive, and she did. She at least does believe that the photographs that are circulating of her, the revenge porn that is circulating of her on right-wing media sites is originally coming from her husband. That was during the, the campaign. She said that that was an affair that she should not have engaged in, but did engage in prior to becoming a congresswoman. The investigation that the House is undertaking, as you mentioned, is of a, a separate allegation a uh, relationship with a subordinate during her time in office dating to uh, the beginning of 2019, which is now against House rules. It didn't used to be, but it is now. When did that change? Last year, 2018. And the reasons for that being against the rules, I think, are obvious. There are power dynamics involved in a relationship with a staff member and someone in a position of huge power like a Congress member that are very difficult to get past uh, while someone is in office. And I think you can feel a lot of media outlets not knowing how to cover this yeah. story, present company included. I like there are you don't want to get into kink shaming or like any other like like perceived intolerance of an unconventional relationship. But the staff member and even candidate relationship is a fraught one it's not it's something that should be avoided at all costs or at least like get to a point where you are out of this dynamic where someone is working for you and they work at your behest the same as like any boss and employee it's like it has to be handled really delicately yeah i i think the the clearest assessment that I've read of this situation came from Maura Donegan of The Guardian, also former operator of the shitty media men list. I want to just read her quote. Okay, so so she says, what Hill admits to an extramarital affair with a campaign staffer during what she calls the final tumultuous years of an abusive marriage isn't great. It's worth pointing out the distinct ethical position of a woman's abuse of power in this way from a man's. When Hill engaged in an affair with a campaign aide, she did not do so in the context of millennia of men's sexual violence against women, and she did not do so with the reasonable ability to threaten force. But acknowledging this does not mean we must understand such affairs as acceptable. She goes on to call it unethical, but the greater the greater gist of, of what Donegan is writing mm-hmm. and, and my take as well about the situation that is unfolding with Katie Hill right here is that her husband, if he is responsible for the leaks of these images to uh, the Daily Mail and to Red State, is probably under California law guilty of a crime. Yes. The distribution Absolutely. of uh, revenge porn. And I think that we are very likely to see this tactic employed by Republican outlets much more frequently going forward. As we've seen the power dynamics only slightly start to shift in favor of women, as we've started to see. Uh, more women elected to Congress, particularly in the last election cycle, we're going to see a lot of conservative outlets and far right outlets use revenge porn, use victim blaming, slut shaming, these types of tactics to put women in their place. Yeah, what's that guy? Jacob Wool? Is that Mm -hmm. how you say his name? He's had like a press conference every Friday being like, you know, angry former lover of Kamala Harris comes forward. Yeah, trying to like 
say whatever about Elizabeth Warren. Yeah, it's like every he's going to go through every woman running for the presidency, basically. I, I think have... we, we are going to see this more frequently because I think for their constituency, for their readership, those people do not think that... For example, the distribution of revenge porn is a legitimate criminal offense. Mm -hmm. They think that it is like the product of PC culture gone too far and that if you don't want those images distributed, then you shouldn't have taken them. That is kind of like the mindset. So they're at zero risk of pushback from their own audience. They're going to feel very emboldened to do this and import, as uh, Maura Donegan says, the, the mentality of domestic abuse into our politics. Yeah, it is a, a generational thing. We talked about how a, a lot was made at the time when Katie Hill was running that she was a millennial. She's one of the youngest, one of the first millennial members of Congress, one of the youngest people in there now. Sexual indiscretions among Congress members and all politicians are not new, but photographic, the visual record of them is newer. But we've seen this come out in the past with uh, Aaron Schock, the Congress member from Illinois, who was a social conservative, like anti-gay, and pictures of him, like sexual pictures of him with men came right. out and yeah. were and were released. So yeah, it could be something that we're just seeing a lot more often, and it is very dangerous if these images are just fair game uh like it does feel like a judge at some point in a case like this like katie hills has to just intervene and say you cannot distribute images like these to get revenge on somebody without criminal punishment and she is i believe already in the process of suing her ex-husband but where are like the the charges from Jackie Lacey's office like yeah, I don't know right. like where these would necessarily be coming from but yeah. it seems to be transparently a crime that has been in recent years settled and like ruled against distributors of these yeah. images yeah including in some cases the media outlets right and I, I would think that it should be I don't I don't know where enforceability of that lies particularly for a company like the Daily Mail yeah. or whatever but but certainly for I saw some people blogging for Red State at the Astro uh, family restaurant on Fletcher one time. I could see them in, ed in edit mode on their laptop for <laughs> Red State. That's so, a co-working space. Yeah, maybe, they got kicked out of the WeWork. Maybe start That's there. a hot lead. I like yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. And there are a lot of cops in there, too. So. <laughs> Speaking of uh, Jackie Lacey, we haven't talked about this developing story over the last few weeks. Jackie Lacey is the district attorney for L.A. County. Uh, she has been accused in the past of being uh, overly generous in uh, police violence cases, has yet to charge a police officer or sheriff's deputy in a violence case, including in cases where the chief of police, Charlie Beck, said that the officer deserved charges. Uh, she did not file them. There has been a lot of outcry among activist groups for Jackie Lacey to resign and to be voted out of office. She's up for election in 2020. But uh, like a couple of challengers had emerged, including some from within her office. But now uh, one appears to be coming from San Francisco. George Gascon, the district attorney for San Francisco, has resigned his position up there. And all signs point to him coming to L.A. to run against Jackie Lacey for district attorney. We're getting a little snapshot of... Georgia congressional races where her office is saying like we don't need someone from San Francisco coming down here like telling us how <laughs> and yet <laughs> I mean honestly like Jackie Lacey is even by the standards of LA in 2019 routinely among the most disappointing elected officials that we have down here I, I think that her 
reliable unwillingness to hold accountable members of law enforcement is is troubling and really just the way that she views like we we talked very recently about the Ed Buck case how slow she was to act on yeah. uh, bringing charges against Ed Buck really requiring federal intervention to mm-hmm. ultimately do so has also sent uh, 22 people to death row not a single every single one a person of color she herself is black but some have accused her of racial bias and and, and certainly i would do the same thing i, I believe that sh- that her office is is certainly perpetuating a long-standing tradition within the los angeles district attorney's office of of racial bias and it is one would hope uh, increasingly out of step with the way that angelinos perceive how they want criminal justice in our county to be enacted uh, and it does seem like a, a challenger like Gascon, who, who was considerably more progressive than Lacey, is a better fit for mm-hmm. a, a county that is majority minority for a, a county where incomes are low, poverty rate is high. And we just like we need to be finding solutions other than the tough on crime, locking up people of color for the rest yeah. of their lives that, that won't fit us anymore. People ask, I think, like like 22 death penalty cases. Is that a lot? It is. L.A. is like an enormous county. Obviously, it's the biggest in the country. But only three counties in the U.S. have had more than 10 death sentences from 2014 to 2018. Only four had more than one death sentence. And L.A. County is one of those. And so we think about these other places you know we think like oh louisiana must have counties where they're sentencing people to death all the time it's very rare yeah and 22 even in a huge county like this is a lot especially in california where now gavin newsom we're not uh, supposed to be doing this anymore right yes. like yeah it's like not part of our ethos right yes and like you as a district attorney you do have to actively seek out these yeah punishments it is yeah. up to them and i i think one thing that that will be so the the impact of this sort of remains to be seen but one i think early telling sign is that the times editorial board which has in, uh, endorsed Jackie Lacey twice sort of signaled their openness to endorsing somebody else they were they're almost recruiting uh, yeah. challengers to her in the upcoming election and saying that the they are ready to endorse somebody besides Jackie Lacey, which is from from the editorial board of the Times kind of a, a major step. Here's another story that we have not covered, but that has also been uh, developing for a few weeks. The L.A. County Assessor's Office is one that has been fraught with scandal over the last few years. The previous assessor, John Noguez, went to prison. Yep. For deals with property owners, basically giving them favorable assessments so they could pay lower taxes, even lower taxes. Yeah, how could you pay even? How could you go lower than what they already are? He was replaced by Jeffrey Prang, a a West Hollywood city council member, I believe, prior to this. Is that right? Jeff Prang came from, I believe he was working in in a city councilor's office and prior to that might have been at West Hollywood. Uh, he Yes, he was a former West Hollywood council member, and he beat uh, John Lower Taxes Low. If you <laughs> voted in that election, you might remember this guy had his name legally changed to John, quote, Lower Taxes Low. It was not successful. 
Jeffrey Prang won. He ran as a reformer. But now some people in his office have been speaking out saying that basically the same stuff that was going on under John Noguez is continuing to happen under Jeff Prang. Yeah, the accusations that are coming from former employees of the assessor's office who that they're saying were terminated in retaliatory fashion for bringing up the discriminatory and or favorable use of tax exemptions for the wealthy. They're saying basically that what happened under the previous assessor Uh, what were known as like executive referrals that were used to allow the assessor himself to overrule tax assessments written at a a lower level and and give his friends beneficial arrangements. Mm -hmm. That is sort of happening in the same way, but sort of happening in a different way. The, The assessor's office has said categorically, this is not the case. These are employees with an axe to grind, all things that are very, I think, frequently used in defense of these uh, accusations of retaliatory action. However, what the accusers are actually saying is that the county appeals division within the assessor's office would be told to like deliberately lose appeals cases. So the wealthy people would go in and say that they felt like they should be paying uh, this amount in taxes as opposed to a separate amount or that the valuation they thought they should have would be considerably lower than what the county had given them. Yeah. They go through an appeals process that in- involves going to a an appeals board and that the county would deliberately lose those cases, thereby allowing the the wealthy people to basically set the the rate at which their property would be valued and taxed. And in some cases, well, even worse than that, in some cases, they go to the appeals board, lose. Yeah. Right. Like the, the, the claimants, the property owners lose with the appeals board and the assessor's office then reverse the decision, even though the appeals board is meant to be binding. These are the claims seems like this should be documented on paper somewhere, whether these things happen. But apparently court documents show this is in Richard Winton's uh, article about this from a few weeks ago. Several groups and individuals have received special treatment, including the Rand Corporation, various apartment complex owners and property developers and a San Marino property swap involving John Barger, brother of County Supervisor Catherine Barger. Believable. Yeah. I mean, what have we been, just been talking <laughs> I'm about? Not, this I'm week? like gasping right. over like the the possibility that they got favorable treatment. I will say this is a little bit different in that John Noguez uh, was found to have taken direct bribes, one hundred eighty five thousand dollars in bribes, and as far as has been reported, Jeffrey Prang has not been like pocketing money. He's just potentially giving politically influential people better treatment. Yeah. And I, I think that we we really should be questioning where the actions of county supervisors fall in this because they are uh, they have considerable sway, of course, with the assessor's office. And I think that, uh, like you're saying, there will be documentary evidence of this. There will be, I think, clear ties if they exist between county supervisors and the people that are receiving these beneficial arrangements. But just like the, the suggestion that the wealthy and the powerful are receiving major discounts on their taxes. Even more major. Even more major. It, it plays into, I think, what is a pre-existing narrative about how things work at the assessor's office. We now have the reform candidate who supposedly, and according to uh, themselves in this article, came in and halted the uh, the corrupt practices that were going on immediately on, on day one when they came in. But now there's the suggestion that that has continued in different fashion. So 
we're going to have to see how this develops, but it, it doesn't look good <laughs> on, on the face. It does not look good. Thank you so much for listening to LA Podcast. We will do the show again next week in November. Everyone be safe and have a nice Halloween. Bye. LA Podcast.